Another Apple Zero Day, a pair of Windows vulnerabilities, and a huge but small Twitter hack. We'll talk about all that and more. I'm Doug, that's Paul, and this is the Naked Security Podcast. First, Paul, fun fact. The Australian Alps get more snow than the Swiss Alps, located in the southeast of the continent and with their highest peaks reaching more than 6,000 feet or 2,000 meters. The Australian Alps receive a fair amount of precipitation thanks to their proximity to the ocean. And Paul, I've always wondered, you lived in Oz for a while. Did you ever go skiing? I have gone water skiing in my life very many times, not in Australia as it happens. But snow skiing is not for me, Douglas. You keep falling over and that can cause serious injury. Sure because can. Because when you land on water, if you're going fast, it does hurt. But it is water. It's not like rock underneath the snow and how steep it is coming down. That's the worst. <laughs> mm-hmm. Deceleration is, can be quite tricky. Uh, speaking of tricky, what, this another Apple Zero Day. I have some ideas for Apple and some questions, but first, what what happened this time? The one that came out now, or the one that came out just before the one that came out now? I mean, yeah, uh, I mean, the one that came out just now is a genuine emergency update. It seems because, as we've said before many times, Apple doesn't say next Thursday there's an update coming out, so get prepared. It just arrives, and this one just arrived even more secretly than usual. I didn't see an email from a warning email from Apple's security advisories. If you go to their web page, their security portal web page, HT201222, where it lists all the updates for all the supported platforms and the date they came out, nothing. Your phone either has to tell you there's an update ready, I'm installing it, or you have to go and check. And this is a, a one bug fix, it seems. And unlike the windows bugs that all have something 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 nightmare of late this one doesn't even have a doesn't even have a boring name let alone a fancy name it just has the you know the mitre magic numeric identifier cve 2021-30807 and all we know is and i'm quoting from apple here it says an application may be able to execute arbitrary code with kernel privileges basically they can jailbreak your phone without asking Apple is aware of a report that this issue may have been actively exploited, which means we're pretty certain it's a zero day. Uh, the, the the whispering was italics, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Not part of what Apple actually said, just in case that wasn't clear. So that's where we are. There's this fix for something that it sounds as though it's at least elevation of privilege uh, or local code execution possibly even remote code execution. So we don't know, could this be triggered by something you view in a browser? So just going to a web page that has the wrong sort of image on it could trigger it? Or does it require something in an app that you might have to use some particular feature that's legit but can be rigged to trigger this bug? We don't quite know. But it does sound like a genuine case of patch early, patch often, if it's the case that arbitrary code execution kernel privilege in the wild the question arises what is this related to the pegasus thing because that's what the that's what the pegasus thing sounds like that they can kind of just escalate privileges without any user intervention they've just got got control of different aspects of your phone but again that that we've known about that (laughs) i I think the pegasus thing was uh, a kind of a story in its own right about what opinion should we have about government spyware what opinions should we have about how we regulate this stuff 
This has been going on for ages. Who's been using this toolkit? So I don't think there's any evidence that this is related to that. Who knows? Maybe news leaked out from a jailbreaking group who just, hey, here's a way you can get control over your phone. It seems like it must have happened suddenly. Otherwise, you'd imagine that surely they would have they would have fixed it last time, which was, mm-hmm. what, just about a week ago when they had an update that came out that again arrived out of the blue and didn't come with email warnings and only came for iOS and then iPadOS update came a couple of days later. Uh, and remember we before we were saying, I wonder if this fixes that weird Wi-Fi access point bug. It did. So that one was done. Mm-hmm. This is something new. So I'm imagining it's something that just appeared and Apple figured, wow, what with all the what with all the fuss, we'd better just jump in and fix it. And it begs the question, I, I know it probably doesn't apply to this particular patch, but in general, the communication has not been great or it's it, like is it time for Apple to consider its own kind of version of Patch Tuesday where they where they have a regular patching cadence and they can put a bit of planning and communication around these fixes because I'm sh- it fe- it feels like something's happening they're all scrambling they're getting the update out and then they finally get around to updating what has actually been fixed but if I have a phone running iOS 12 is this a true zero day where I'm affected too and it hasn't been patched or is this something that i don't need to worry about and i we have yeah, no exactly. idea because i have an ios 12 phone and i went to settings general software update you have ios 12.5.4 i think it is you are fully up to date great so there isn't a patch so i'm not lacking something that everyone else could have but like you say does that mean that because apple hasn't said anything no news is good news therefore i'm immune does it mean the code's there, but we can't figure out how to exploit it yet. So we're kind of still looking, but watch this space. So I'm with you. I I wish there were a bit more clarity. So no email warning to remind sysadmins of what's going on and all the various flavors. Nothing on the security portal page. Just, well, there's an update. You'll find out sooner or later. It's interesting that a company that's concerned with image the lack of an update cadence is kind of a show that like, oh, hey, we're we're pretty secure. We don't need to patch all that often. But as we were talking about before the show, I said, it seems like they've been doing a lot of these lately. And you brought up a good point. It's not that they're doing, they just happen to have a bunch in a row, but it's just, it's kind of a bad look when people can say, oh my gosh, look at all these, they've been just, are they getting hacked relentlessly? But it's like, if they're a little more transparent, which I know is not not really an Apple thing, but a little transparency, especially in 2021, we're in the age of transparency right now. It, it might go a long way to kind of placating some of these uh, misplaced curiosities of uh, what's actually going on. Yes, because even though some people don't like the fact that there are, seem to be so many Microsoft updates and they come in this giant bunch of but at least with Microsoft's big updates, when you go into a particular CV number or a particular vulnerability and you click through, although the pages can be long and they're complex looking, it does give you a list, products affected. And you can go in there and you can look and you can go, well, Windows 10, uh, Windows Server 2012, all of this stuff. And you see, well, Windows Server 2019, if it's not on the list, it means this patch doesn't apply. There isn't one. So you can stand down from blue alert. On the other hand, you might see, wow, I've got a rather older version of Windows. That 
is affected even though this seems like a new bug. You can find out which patches, which vulnerabilities apply to which versions and make sure that you don't miss anything and that you've got an idea that the reason that we haven't patched the Windows 2019 server is this bug doesn't apply to it. There is something rather comforting in that, isn't there? So I don't know. I don't think we have any answers, do we? Um, no, and I hope I hope that we're not talking about this again next week. Another sort of fix. Yeah. And I did want to I did want to remind people that we record this on Tuesday. So by the time you're listening to this, they may it may be totally transparent, and the updates may be there and all that kind of stuff. So, or it may be then, it may be totally less opaque. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally slightly clearer. So yeah. that is uh, Apple Emergency Zero Day Fix for iPhones and Macs. Get it now on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And then we're going to talk about an adorable Windows network attack called Petite Potam, which is a nod to the endangered pygmy hippopotamus. And, oh my, this is, uh, <laughs> we've got uh, the blast from the past NTLM yes. authentication system. Exactly what a... the words I was the word that were on the tip of my tongue, Doug. B from P. It's kind of not really a vulnerability or an exploit because it's just the abuse of a problem that we already know exists in Microsoft's old style NTLM authentication system. It was called Landman, Land Manager, the sort of early networking subsystem. Then it became NTLM, NT Land Manager. You know, this was designed more than a couple of decades ago and cryptographically it just doesn't really stack up to the way that cryptographic verification protocols are expected to be done these days for example uh, when you're transferring password hashes the algorithm for computing the password hashes can be done extremely quickly and that means that firstly this thing's ntlm generally is vulnerable to things like which are called relay attacks or manipulator in the middle what used to be man in the middle mitm attacks and uh, as long ago as 2012 for example a, a security researcher called jeremy gosney built for himself for the price of twenty thousand dollars sounds a lot but when you hear what it can do it's just an indication of how problematic ntlm authentication was even back then it had 25 graphics cards in this computer which was standalone so you could literally run one at home maybe mm -hmm. if you had three-phase power, and it could crack, it could do a brute force attack on any legal eight-character Windows password in six hours, eight years ago. Wow. What am I saying? Nearly nine years ago now. So way back in 2010, Microsoft started telling people, look, we're deprecating this. NTLM, it's the old way of doing it. It's like SSL is to TLS now. It's like DES is to AES now. It was cryptographically okay at one time, but these days it's just not a good enough way of doing the over-the-network authentication and protection. Could I play the part of the customer at this point? Yeah, go on. Microsoft, please just let us use this a little bit longer. Just a little bit longer. How does eight weeks sound? How about years and years longer? We need several decades or even that's i guess the long and the short of it all they could really do is say we had anyone who's writing applications that need to authenticate from now on back in 2010 use kerberos 5 the new way of doing things 
it doesn't have these particular weaknesses and let's move to a brave new world folks and here we are today with many networks that still have servers that support NTLM authentication and applications and online services that require it in order to be able to use the network at all and what uh, this researcher Gilles Lionel now he must be a hippopotamus fan because he, he mm -hmm. his name is Topotam77 on Twitter and he called this bug named it after himself Petipotam which is sort of like a abbreviated form as far as I can make out of French of pygmy hippopotamus one of the cutest aquatic mammals you'll ever see use your favorite search engine to find the image uh, and you'll see what I mean and basically what he did is he just found a protocol an authentication protocol on the network that still relies on NTLM that has not yet been subjected to kind of extra precautionary wrapping to make it last a little bit longer in a hostile world by Microsoft protocol uh, and ironically apparently the, the big way of exploiting NTLM authentication with these relay or manipulator in the middle attacks until fairly recently was was kind of like yesteryear's print nightmare you used uh, a thing called the Microsoft print system remote protocol you could persuade a, uh, a client computer basically to hand over its credentials to you on the way and then you'd log in as them so you'd, you'd, you'd subvert their login attempt via an effort to print and indeed it was just recommended if you don't need this printing protocol which many people didn't it's not like stopping the print spooler you just turned off the service it wasn't exposed and what Topotam found is that there's another protocol ironically one that's supposed to be good for security it's the Microsoft encrypting file system remote protocol which says I want to access like a file server or files across the network but I want them to be encrypted in flight so that nobody can sniff them out and he found that the N NTLM authentication if it was enabled and in some ways there you could do this relay attack and you could authenticate even though you weren't supposed to on the back of someone else more annoyingly than with the print case even if you decided well I'm not using this encrypting file system remote protocol even if you turned off the service the authentication part was still active because it was kind of enabled elsewhere in the system oh, and therefore there on. wasn't an easy fix like there was in the printer case where no one's running the old school print the protocol off, yeah. anymore so even if you've got NTLM authentication active which ideally you wouldn't have if you're not running the printer service thing can't be attacked that way but if you do have NTLM authentication active even if you're not actively running this encrypting file system protocol business you can still mount this authentication trick and you can gain basically unauthorized access e.g. to somebody's domain controller okay so three things have to be in play for this to work right you have to have ntlm authentication enabled on your domain yes so if ntlm authentication is disabled across your network this one doesn't apply sadly it seems that on many networks ntlm authentication is still there because doug they're still in the that <laughs> magic eight week slash 12 year cutover period <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah so that's a that that that's a quick fix but it might not 
I guess any network that doesn't need NTLM authentication has probably very proudly turned it off long ago. Okay, and then we've got if you so NTLM has to be uh, enabled. Yes. You have to be using Active Directory certificate services. Yes, that's a special feature that allows you to uh, do certificate to add some kind of uh, certificate authentication for validating one or both ends. So that has to be turned on. I don't know why you would have it turned off if you did have NTLM authentication on, but if you don't need it and you do turn it off, that is the what Microsoft calls the next least worst or the, the, the next best way of fixing the problem. Because, of course, if you turn off Active Directory certificate services, it stops petty potam, but it doesn't stop similar attacks against other protocols named after cute aquatic mammals. <laughs> And then you have to have either Certificate Authority Web Enrollment or Certificate Enrollment Web Service enabled. So you have to yes. have all those three things in play. It sounds much more complicated be... when you say it than when I'm looking at it written down here. But mm -hmm. yeah, it is quite a thing, right? If Like if you've never heard of those, you might have just had them turned on because you had some web services or some you know online app that talks to a web backend that needed it. It may just be left on because that's the way... You needed it on your network. But the main advice is to turn NTLM off. Just stop using it. If you can. If you can't, maybe this is a great reminder to start just revisiting, is there a way we can get rid of this? Because Microsoft, to their credit, they've had to be honest in what you might call their vulnerability report. And they've just said, the underlying problem here is that basically if we could rewind time, we wouldn't design NTLM authentication in the way we did. And the problem is, if you need this, possibly even in only one place on your network, then you need to go and carefully visit all the individual areas where it's needed and see if you can apply some NTLM-specific mitigations. Well, sounds like a fun project. That is uh, Windows Potipotem, Network Attack, How to Protect Against It. And as promised, we have a second Windows security story. But before we get to that, let's talk about this week in tech history. This week in 1963, SYNCOM-2, short for Synchronous Communication Satellite 2, was launched into geosynchronous orbit, facilitating the first satellite-based phone call in one of the first satellite TV transmissions. It was also used by NASA for voice, teletype, and fax testing. SYNCOM-1 launched a few months earlier and made it into orbit as well, but an electronics failure rendered it inoperable. So... So where is SYNCOM-1 now? Is it space junk, or did it fall Syncom back? SYNCOM-1, we hardly knew ye, I guess. I guess it's hurtling toward uh, one of Jupiter's many moons, is my guess. Or maybe like a cool black hole that we don't know about, or landed on the moon. At any rate, it never carried a <laughs> phone call. It didn't. SYNCOM-2, Phone though, call did. 1 was SYNCOM-2. Yep. Was it 1963? 1963. I I'd love to know how much it would cost to make that satellite phone call compared to using Skype or Teams uh -huh. or WhatsApp or Zoom. <laughs> it was from um, John F. Kennedy, President of the United States, to, I believe, the Ugandan Prime Minister, and he called from, like, a, a boat or an aircraft carrier or something like that. So they really, they really tested off. I don't want to be the lengths of the... Yeah. <laughs> but so. we've come nowhere since then, have we? Hello, I'm on a train! Yeah. So, like, who cares if you're on a train? Kind of not a new thing. Mm-hmm. I always, I don't know if you guys have these in the UK, but you know, the trains in the US uh, have a quiet car where you're not allowed to talk on the phone. So I love finding the quiet car. 
I was once in a quiet, the quiet carriage coming back from London. This woman suddenly started taking a phone call in the quiet carriage. You're not supposed to. Yeah. And it was, she was talking about some real estate deal and naming, it was like the most shameless PII disaster <laughs> in the world. And then yeah. I was, I was at the point of saying something, which is a very un-British thing to do. And then suddenly they announced the next station. She got off. There's always someone in the quiet car that doesn't know they're in the quiet car. That's the problem. But I just felt sorry for the other person who was being discussed like they were just some pawn in this. Like, if you're a crook, if you're a scammer, it would just be golden for, like, business email compromise or something like that. Speaking of compromise, uh, lest you think we wouldn't talk about print nightmare this week, we actually won't, but we will talk about hive nightmare. This is a new Windows bug, and, Paul, this is a bug that could leak passwords. Serious Sam, it's also been dubbed. I, I guess the nightmare was just somebody couldn't resist how good print nightmare sounded and wanted their bug to sound dramatic. So the name Hive comes from the fact that the Windows registry, which is the configuration database, mm -hmm. is actually stored as a number of separate yeah, and hives. Uh, proprietary database files and I don't know, many hives make a honey farm? I don't know. Uh, and there are several files that are actually quite important from a security point of view because they have secrets in there that aren't supposed to be publicly visible. And if you go in with the registry editor, you will not be able to see them. And one of those files is called SAM, all caps, S-A-M. Is the security account manager. And the problem is terribly simple and my goodness, how come no one noticed it? Basically, the idea is that if you want to go in and get access to those actual raw Hive files from which you could extract things like password hashes and cryptographic secrets, which would allow you to promote yourself to admin, to read the files or the registry via the registry API, you already have to be admin. Now, that neatly solves the problem, doesn't it? In order to get the information you need to become admin, you have to be admin to start with problem solved. Turns out that actually, if you go and look at the access control list settings on the individual Hive files hidden away under the Windows folder, where most people don't know to go and look at them, they actually have read access for all users. So in theory, any user on your computer, including yourself, if you're not Whoa. an admin, you think surely someone would have noticed this. The problem yes. is, if you try and access the file while Windows is running, you do get an error. You just don't get the right error. So you get error, file is locked because the system's using it and it won't let anyone else mess with it. What you should get is error five, access denied, mm -hmm. which means you tried to access the file, you didn't even begin to get anywhere near it. But I think it's error 32, which is sharing violation or file locked. That means we let you get closer to the file but actually somebody else is sitting at that table. You can't dine yet. So the bug couldn't be exploited while the system was running unless you had made what's called a volume shadow copy or a system restore point. Oh, uh, my. Which is, you know, that's one of those, those Windows online backups that a lot of people sadly rely on and that the crooks, the ransomware crooks, know to delete before they scramble your files 
because a lot of people go, ha ha ha, I'll recover from my last restore point, which I made last week. Oh dear, it's gone. However, if you had a system restore point, and many people keep them because they're useful, some security products apparently even use them to as a kind of online temporary backup. But what can happen is that things like system updates may make them for you. So it didn't matter whether mm-hmm. you made it or not. The thing is, when you make those system restore points, the volume shadow copies, what you get is a directory tree hidden away in a special part on your hard disk with most of your Windows files in it, including those registry hives. And guess what? Those inherit or they get a copy of the read access to all users access control list flag. But because they are backup copies, they are not locked by any other Windows process. Oh, and a regular user, goodness. if they know the magic directory where they live, which is not huh. a secret, it's well documented, you can actually use the VSS admin command, which is a standard command on Windows. You go VSS admin list shadows, three words from a command prompt, and it tells you whether you've got any shadow copies. And it tells you the magic weird directory name that they're stored in. And you stick the name of the registry hive file on the end of that string, and then you can read it out. The backup copies of the files are readable, but not locked. So you don't get an error 5, but you don't get an error 32 either. Oh dear. Oh dear, indeed. So there's no fix for this yet, but there's Microsoft does have an official workaround. Yes, the official workaround is easy, but somewhat annoying. Basically, the first thing you need to do, and it's, an, it's, a, it's one command, it's very easy to do, you use the, a command called iCackles, which is a Windows command for setting access control lists, and you go in and you remove the read all access to regular users from the registry hive files, all of them. The problem is that fixes the problem now and into the future, but it doesn't go in and lock down the existing restore point files. Mm-hmm. I haven't tried this. I presume that if you knew what you could do, we're doing, you could write a small Windows program or a Python script or something that tried to fix the access permissions in the hidden directories with the shadow copies in them. The problem is, would that mess up any later attempt to restore them if you needed to? And Microsoft mm-hmm. isn't saying. And unfortunately, as far as I know, Microsoft doesn't yet have a script that will retrospectively fix your old online shadow copy backups. And their solution is very, very simple. It is the command VSS admin delete space shadows slash all, which you don't have to be a techie to figure uh, Nukes them. does what it says on the tin. That means that in order to improve your security against insecure backups, you have to remove the backups in the first place. And ironically, that very command is exactly the command that almost every ransomware crook uses just before they fire off the ransomware and burn down your files. That's the bitter irony, that a command abused by ransomware crooks is, in this case, your saviour. <laughs> but the good news is there is at least a fix, and once you've fixed those uh, access control list settings on the registry hive files and removed the shadow copies, of course, then this bug can't recur. Windows Hive Nightmare Bug Could Leak Passwords. Here's what to do on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And we're going to talk about a high-profile Twitter hack that only took over 45 accounts. But, Paul, what accounts they were. Yes. Big names on here. When you talk about Twitter hack, 
everyone assumes you mean the Twitter hack. Lots of people will remember this. Like you said, just 45 accounts, but it was accounts like Bill Gates, Apple Computer, Elon Musk, Kanye West, Joe Biden, Barack Obama, Jeff the Spaceman, Bezos, <laughs> Mike Bloomberg, Warren Buffett, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, and last but by no means least, Kim Kardashian. Um, <gasps> so the crooks took over just those accounts. There were 45 accounts. That apparently they tried to get hold of 130. They were unsuccessful on most of them at those 45. Their previous business, allegedly, had been getting hold of accounts with what are called, I'm just the messenger here, OG or original gangster accounts. And by that's meant they're accounts that people created in the very early days of Twitter that have really short names. So you know how Twitter's Jack Dorsey, he's just at Jack. Mm-hmm. Anyone who's called Jack these days is going to be at another underscore Jack underscore 7521 or something. That is available, I checked. Uh, and the idea is that there are people, knowing it's fully unlawful, but who don't know how to hack, would love to own those accounts. I suppose it's like having a, a private number plate or something. They'll pay good money for them. So that's what these cooks were into. They were into account takeovers, and they didn't need high volume. They were just trying to sell these like one-letter, two-letter, three-letter account names or funky words that were long gone, and they were never going to become available and aren't supposed to be sold. And then they obviously figured, let's branch out. Let's go after accounts that are so heavily followed, that are so influential, that if we promote a crypto coin scam with them, no matter how far-fetched it sounds, at least some people will probably fall for it because they'll go, hey, if it's good enough for Kimbo, it's good enough for Mebo or something (laughs) like that. And uh, the idea was, hey, let's energize the cryptocurrency market or something along those lines start investing, like get some transactions going because transactions are the, that's what makes cryptocurrency work. So send me $1,000 in a transaction and I'll do a transaction. I'll send you $2,000 back. Like, okay, who's going to fall for it except that it's these high profile accounts doing it. And apparently Mm -hmm. uh, at least several hundred people did. And in this scam, allegedly they netted at least 100,000. Three of them allegedly were identified One of them was just 17 years old. He'd previously been implicated in a Bitcoin scam running somewhere around a million dollars. And he agreed to give it back to the Secret Service or something to settle the investigation at the age of 17. Mm -hmm. And he famously was, in the early days of the pandemic, his trial was one of those that got Zoom bombed. Oh, okay. There were people coming up with political rants in the trial. And inevitably of course someone decided it would be great fun to share their screen while it was showing a porn movie and it all went downhill very very rapidly from there anyway he ever ended up getting he did get convicted in the end i think he pleaded guilty and he got three years i don't know what happened to the other two people uh one of them was actually in the uk and i may never have gone any further for that fellow but suddenly out of the blue we got news that a fourth person just got arrested uh, at the request of the US, who'd got a court warrant. And the interesting thing is this person is not American, he's from the UK, and he was arrested at a seaside town in Spain on the Costa del Sol. Oh, I love that place. 325 days of sunshine a year. Um, But it wasn't very sunshiny for him. No. The allegations against him are that he was involved in the Twitter hack, and he's also alleged to have been involved in doing the same thing with 
TikTok and Snapchat accounts. There are no court documents publicly available yet. And I'm guessing because, very sadly, one of the other charges that this person faces relates to cyberstalking of a juvenile. As far as the hack goes, clearly this was some sort of advanced technology they use that's never been seen before, some sort of really next-level type hacking. Am I right? Well, that is the warning to us all, isn't it? These fellows, it seems, the way they were taking over accounts is entirely using the gift of the gab. Because you think about it, Twitter doesn't even allow you to sell accounts. And if it's an account that someone's an OG account that with a short name that someone's not going to notice has gone missing you're not going to be able to like put malware on that person's computer because they're probably not even using the account they're probably not even logged in and so what they were able to do was get hold of Twitter and work their sleazy charms on Twitter support staff until eventually they themselves had wangled credentials that allowed them to log into Twitter's let us recover accounts system and sadly at the time it seems that there wasn't a kind of back-end procedure that raised alarm bells that an attack of this sort was going on and that there was some gift of the gabbers plying their gab and also I guess the problem that Twitter had this system that allowed support staff to do complete account recoveries presumably without any checks and balances so once the crooks had these secret internal logins, they were actually able to act as the highest level of account recovery support person uh, as much as if they're an insider. So I gather Twitter has uh, made some amends by, by making this much harder to do. But yeah, it was what you might call a low-tech but a high gift of gab crime. And uh, inside the article, we have uh, embedded our special chat with Rachel Toback. She's a social engineering expert, and it's a fascinating look into how some of these scams are pulled off. So that uh, is called U.S. Court Gets U.K. Twitter Hack Suspect Arrested in Spain on NakedSecurity.Sophos.com. And again, check out that special episode with Rachel Toback. Yes, that podcast is a great listen because this is the kind of thing that's very hard to defend against with technology because as you said at the beginning wistfully this is a high-tech attack wasn't it meaning it was almost like a no-tech attack it was basically somebody just tried a little bit too hard to be helpful and didn't realize that sometimes it's okay to say no and the customer is not always right and sometimes they're far from honest too okay so those are the end of our stories. Let's slip into the oh no. Now, usually we take an oh no from internet or from a listener, but I recently moved my office around and as I was doing it, it reminded me of a personal and very painful oh no that I wrought upon myself. And I hope our dear listeners can learn from this. But back in 2005 or so, I purchased my if first they can't learn, TV. Can they laugh? Yeah, they can laugh. Yes, please do. I can laugh about it now, but I didn't back then. So 2005, <laughs> I, I purchased my, flat, my first flat panel TV. I believe it had a 26-inch screen. I know it was very heavy, and I was very careful with it. And I sat this TV on a stand for a while. And there was a, this constant but nagging desire to mount it on the wall, like all the, all, all the other cool flat panel TVs I'd seen. So I finally mustered up the courage to buy a mounting kit. And after what seemed like hours of stud finding and leveling and 
drill charging, I was finally ready to mount this thing. Now remember, despite this only being 26 inches, the TV was still very heavy. So I was very worried about it falling off the wall. And these wall mounting kits, much as what they do today, go wrong? Yeah, they come with several types of mounting screws that you could use depending on your TV. So they just give you all these different screws and you figure out what uh, works for your TV. Now, I didn't know this. So instead of figuring out which type of screws would work best for my TV, I simply chose the longest ones in the box. And I was confident in the idea that the longer the screws I used, the more secure my TV would be. Yes, because obviously the wall is like actually as thick as the screws are long, isn't it? Yeah, well, this is this is the part that goes from the plate into the TV. So right. I, I had it on the wall already. So I, so I took the longest screws in the box. I got the TV secured to the bracket. I got the bracket secured to the wall. I plugged in the TV, and nothing happened. And in my excitement, I hadn't noticed the butt ends of the screws were now protruding out the front of my TV, clear through the liquid crystal display and directly through my heart. Oh, I thought you're drilling into the wall. Oh, you, The ah, wall part was yeah. fine. Oh. It was the drilling into the heart. Oh, harness. I was imagining it was going to be something like you tripped the mains or you no, electrocuted no. yourself mildly for half an hour or the wall collapsed. Yep, you drilled, drilled through your own television. Screws right through the front of the screen, yep. They'll go, they'll go clear through if you use a drill powerful enough. Let's let's go back to the the crisis of conscience part, Doug. When you when you when when, when you took it back for the warranty claim, what oh, did they say? Yeah, seriously, no. <laughs> I, I remember my wife coming into the room and just being like, "What's wrong?" I just had my head in my hands and I was like, "I can't believe I did this." This the the one thing I didn't want to happen was this TV to fall off the wall and get damaged. Let alone well, it didn't die. No, I it didn't even last on the wall. I just killed it before it even had a chance. These these earlier TVs had kind of like a, a bulbous square behind them where all the components were kept. This went right through everything. And in retrospect, I was like, why what was I thinking? The screw is thicker than the TV itself, and it just kept go- just went right through. When I am very good at mounting TVs now after years of practice, but now I you have to look in the manual and say, oh, this needs an M2 screw or an M4 screw. You gotta you gotta get the right screws in there because uh, learn from me. I just ruined a perfectly good TV. Was there a point at which you thought, shucks, this screw's really hard. I'll up the torque a bit. No, and from that, after this incident, I, only, I will only use a hand screwdriver when I'm putting screws in the back of the TV for this very reason, because it just went zhut, 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 and right through. Didn't even notice. But I learned. That's a good learning experience. you got to make those mistakes. But you don't have to, Doug. You, could just... you don't have to. You can just learn from me, yeah. <laughs> uh, if you have an Ono that you'd like to submit, or if you'd like to send me a 26-inch ProVision flat panel TV from 2005, we'd love to read it on the podcast. Email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. And for Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you until next time to stay, stay secure. secure.